Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Today, we'll discuss a virtual tumor board case. Before we begin, we must include a disclaimer. All information presented during this podcast is made available solely for general information purposes. The IASLC does not warrant the accuracy, completeness, or usefulness of this information. This information is not intended as medical advice and should not be relied upon as a substitute for consultations with your qualified health or medical professionals. Any reliance placed on such information is strictly at your own risk. The IASLC disclaims all liability and responsibility arising from any reliance placed on such materials by you or any other person. In addition, the presentation by the IASLC or a third party of any materials or information regarding any specific opinion, product, process, service, or organization on this podcast does not constitute or imply the IASLC's endorsement or recommendation of such opinion, product, process, service, or organization. All statements, opinions, and materials expressed or provided by third parties are solely based on their opinions and the responsibility of the person or entity making such statements or providing such materials. Such third-party opinions do not necessarily reflect any opinion of the ISLC. The ISLC shall not be responsible or liable for the content or accuracy of any statements, opinions, or materials provided by any third parties. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. For this episode, I'm grateful to Dr. Anthony Kim and Dr. Patricia Rivera for joining me today. Dr. Tony Kim is a professor of clinical surgery and chief of thoracic surgery at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California. He brings an expertise in minimally invasive thoracic surgery, both thoracoscopic and robotic. Dr. Patricia Rivera is a professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina, where she founded the first multidisciplinary thoracic oncology program in the country. She's currently co-director of the North Carolina Lung Screening Registry and the UNC Lung Cancer Screening Initiative. Drs. Kim and Rivera, thank you for making the time to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, thank you very much. Very honored. Now, this is a virtual tumor board where we're going to bring the expertise from across the country, right into this podcast, we're going to be discussing what I think is one of the more challenging cases in lung cancer, and that's stage three non-small cell lung cancer. So I'll provide some details and caveats that we don't have all the imaging to review, and we'll speak in general terms. But we've got a patient here who's a 45-year-old female. She presents to her primary doctor with a worsening dry cough for about two months, tested for COVID, found to be negative. After a trial of steroids and antibiotics, Cough did not improve, a familiar story, I think, to all of us. This prompted a chest x-ray that showed a mass in the right lower lobe of the lung. This was followed by a CT scan of the chest that revealed a three and a half centimeter right lower lobe lung mass with mildly enlarged R4 mediastinal nodes. Primary mass and nodes had increased FDG uptake on PET, but no distant diseases noted, and a brain MRI showed no metastases. So to summarize, we have a three and a half centimeter right lower lobe mass and an N2R4 lymph node. Now, we'll start with Dr. Rivera. Patricia, as you see this patient in the clinic, what's your next step? I think the lesion, just imagining it in, on the screen here, is highly suspicious for a primary lung cancer, three and a half centimeters, so that a T2, and the fact that the R4 node is mildly enlarged, and you said mildly hypermetabolic on FDG PET? Mm-hmm, correct is very suspicious for N2 involvement, and this patient may very well have clinical stage 3 disease. The PET shows no evidence of extrathoracic disease, and the MRI of the brain is negative. 
But the CT scan and PET scan alone are not sufficient to deem either conclusive that this patient has involvement of N2 nodes or ipsilateral mediastinal nodes. And for that matter, to say that there isn't N3 disease, contralateral micrometastatic disease in the presence of already a mildly enlarged and mildly hypermetabolic node. I would recommend staging with bronchoscopy and EBUS, and the staging should be approached so that the contralateral nodes are examined first, the left hilum, the left paratracheal, followed by the subcranial and then the right paratracheal and right uh, hilar lymph nodes. Even if this patient did not have evidence of an enlarged node on CT or mildly hypermetabolic node on PET, the fact that it is a three and a half centimeter lesion, the ACCP guidelines, um, and I believe the ERS guidelines would recommend mediastinal staging in someone with a lesion greater than three centimeters. And again, I think the reason for pursuing a definitive sampling of the nodes is because the false positive rate of PET is 15%. You wouldn't want to, you know, make decisions, critical decisions about treatment without knowing the status of the lymph nodes. You were pretty specific about the order, the sequence of the nodal testing on EBUS. Can you explain why that's important? It's, I think you always want to target your invasive mediastinal staging so that you are sampling the higher nodes first. And in a patient with a right-sided tumor, you want to make sure that there are no contralateral lymph nodes because that changes the stage. That would be a stage 3B. If you were to find, let's say, a five millimeter left paratracheal node and you sampled it and it came back positive for cancer, that's stage 3B. Now, what if it were a one centimeter lesion and the nodes were a little enlarged? Do you feel like invasive mediastinal staging should be done in in pretty much everyone with non-small cell lung cancer? So I think that in the setting of a peripheral one centimeter nodule that is, or lesion that is suspicious for cancer because of its characteristic features, and the CT scan shows no evidence of enlarged lymph nodes, and the PET scan shows no evidence of hypermetabolic activity, I do not, I would not recommend, nor do the guidelines recommend invasive mediastinal staging before uh, surgery. That patient would undergo surgical resection and lymph node sampling at the time of surgery. An area of uh, controversy, and because we just really don't know, don't have the data, is in patients who are not eligible for surgery because their comorbidities are so high that the risk of surgery is is high, or patients who don't want surgery and choose to undergo uh, stereotactic radiotherapy for the treatment of a one centimeter lesion that is very suspicious or biopsy proven to be cancer, is sampling of the mediastinal nodes uh, necessary before SBRT? Because again, if this patient were going to go to surgery with a one centimeter nodule, you're going to have nodal sampling at the time of surgical resection. You don't have that benefit post-SBRT. I think we're still sort of accepting that if it's truly uh, peripheral, small, less than a centimeter nodule with the negative CT and a negative PET, that EBUS is not being recommended routinely for patients who undergo SBRT. I think once you get to lesions that are greater than three centimeters, or any mildly enlarged node 
on CT or PET, especially if you're going to be recommending a stereotactic radiotherapy, sampling of the nodes would be indicated. Yeah, this is such valuable insight. I think the, the key lesson here, you know, PET can neither rule in nor rule out in two nodes. It does make a big difference in terms of what we do, and we wouldn't want to subject someone to a surgery that wasn't quite appropriate at that time, and we wouldn't want to deny someone a surgery that really was appropriate. So um, invasive mediastinal staging and bronchoscopy with EBUS really is our preferred modality. You go to Tony, are, what's the role of mediastinoscopy here? Is that sort of a relic of the past? Is there any utility to that? You know, I don't know that it's a relic of the past. I think if you have good interventional pulmonologists or good pulmonologists that have a, a wealth of experience doing the EBUS-guided invasive mediastinal staging, I think the data suggests that the outcomes with that are equivalent to mediastinoscopy. I think if there's any uncertainty that perhaps you have a false negative EBUS, I believe that mediastinoscopy is your tried and true way to get to the answer because you're getting, you know, sizable pieces of tissue. But again, if you're in an environment where you have good interventional pulmonologists, such as, you know, where Dr. Rivera and where, where we are, I think you can save that mediastinoscopy just for when, when you really need it. But I think there's a certain benefit to having that level of expertise there to really feel confident with your results. And I think, again, there's data to suggest that they, they, they're Good mediastinoscopy, or excuse me, a good uh, EBUS guided bi uh, biopsy by an experienced person, uh, interventional pulmonologist, can yield the same results as that of a mediastinoscopy. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Now, in this case, we're going to assume this is a resectable stage 3A non small cell lung cancer, just for the sake of discussion. But, you know, that's an important distinction. We've made a lot of advances with unresectable non small cell lung cancer stage 3. But, you know, that decision about resectable or non resectable, really, you, you need to involve a surgeon. So, can you just in broad terms, walk me through, you know, how do you determine if a cancer is resectable? And maybe can you speak to the difference between resectable and operable? Right. You know, it's, it's interesting. As a surgeon, it's tough for me to draw the difference between those two uh, terms. And the reason I say that is I think the, there's an upfront morbidity with surgery just by doing it that you get. And so the operability and the resectability uh, sort of ride that razor thin line. To me, I think it's important to know that you can get a negative margin. Uh, and, and by negative margin, I, also, I mean grossly, but also that you feel you've get, gotten a true microscopic negative margin. And, and, and I would say that in the context of patients undergoing induction therapy, that decision needs to be made up front. Uh, I think a lot of times uh, there's a, uh, and maybe it's my own personal bias, but a fallacy in thinking that you can give something and it'll shrink it, and then you can resect it. I think that can occur, but I think that's more of the side effect of the systemic agent and or the radiation that you use. I think at the end of the day, in a multidisciplinary setting, the group's got to decide if we gave the systemic therapy to potentially eradicate systemic disease as manifest by the lymph node involvement, then the surgery is the, is the modality that goes in and removes the source of that systemic disease. And so I think that decision's got to be made up front. I think in terms of operability, I think the limited role for just going in and saying something's operable in the OR is just perhaps if the imaging is equivocal and you cannot tell if something's resectable, then perhaps there's a role for something being a patient undergoing an operation to make that assessment either before or after induction or neoadjuvant therapy. But again, I think that the expense of uh, using a pun being surgical, you want to be relatively precise with the decision-making process. And I think that's really facilitated by being in a 
in a groupthink mentality in a quality multidisciplinary tumor board. Yeah, that really is critical making decisions here. We can't make them in a, in a vacuum. So let's talk about a pulmonary function and how that influences our choices. We're talking about a right lower lobe lobectomy. Patricia, what kind of pre-op pulmonary function test threshold should we be looking for? Well, the basics in the evaluation after a detailed history is pulmonary function testing that includes spirometry so that you can measure the FEV1 and diffusing capacity. The FEV1 has been shown, and these are in small studies, uh, to be a predictor of mortality. The diffusing capacity is both a predictor of morbidity uh, and mortality. The guidelines recommend predicted postoperative FEV1 of 40% predicted. So taking the preoperative FEV1 and calculating what it's going to be, what that FEV1 will be following a right lower lobectomy. A right lower lobectomy is removal of five segments. Each segment roughly gets 5.25% of perfusion. So you're roughly losing 25% uh, function if you remove the right lower lobe. So you take your preoperative FEV1 by what you're going to be left with. And then you express it as a percent of what is predicted for that individual because we have come to appreciate that the percent predicted is a lot more accurate than relying on the absolute FEV1. And that's because, you know, older women who are short may have lower absolutes, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to, that's not acceptable. So we use the percent predicted for both the FEV1 and the DLCO. And, you know, sort of this magic number is 40%. If you have, following a right lower lobectomy, your FEV1 and DLCO percent predicted is going to be 40% of predicted, then that is, that has been shown. And again, it's small studies to be acceptable lung function for surgery post-op. But that's just a number. And that there are patients who you calculate these numbers and you say, oh, look, their FEV1% predicted is going to be 50% and the DLCO is going to be 49%. But the patient can't walk across the room now without getting extremely short of breath. Or there's evidence of pulmonary hypertension by, you know, because the PAs are, are enlarged on CT. So the pulmonary function test is only one aspect of the preoperative evaluation for whether or not a patient is going to be able to do well postoperatively. And there are times when you have FEV1 and DLCOs percent predicted uh, postoperative that are less than 40%, and you have someone who's telling you they are going to work every day and that they climb three to five stairs, flights of stairs every day. And so that the numbers don't quite jive in a very functional patient, I think it's critically important to take it one step further with a physiologic assessment, either a walk test or preferably a formal cardiopulmonary exercise test so that you can measure the VO2 max um, and be able to select individuals who, despite poor numbers, are, have the cardiopulmonary reserve and are going to be able to tolerate surgery. Because I think, you know, our job as pulmonologists is to try to optimize function and to really try to get patients to surgery, obviously as safely as possible, but not just using one or two numbers. I think it's the entire picture that has to be put together. That's definitely the case. And let's just go with this case. Here we've got a a T2 right lower lobe lesion. It's resectable. We've got a biopsy confirmed N2 lymph node, but no other disease. And let's say the post 
operative volume predicted is, is you know, well over our 40%. So we decide this is resectable, this is operable, we're going to go forward. At UNC, what is your institutional preference? Where do you lean in terms of perioperative therapy? Treatment for the cancer or? Yeah, treatment for the cancer. Are you more of a neoadjuvant chemotherapy, neoadjuvant chemoradiation, surgery first? So our approach to stage 3A and 3B has not, unless it's in the setting of a clinical trial, included a neoadjuvant followed by a surgery. Mm-hmm. We, unless it's a clinical trial, most patients are treated with concurrent chemoradiotherapy and now in the era of immunotherapy with post-treatment drivolumab. And that's been our approach to locally advanced disease. There is an immunotherapy and chemotherapy trial opening up, followed by surgery for patients with locally advanced disease that will be, you know, we have now been selected as one of the sites and we will begin to, once it's open, to enroll patients into that trial. Mm-hmm. But currently, our approach has been concurrent chemoradiotherapy. When we have participated in clinical trials, they have been trials that have invoked neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by surgery, and then plus or minus chemotherapy and radiation, depending on the results postoperatively. So I think it's a very reasonable approach here. We're incorporating chemoradiation for stage three with confirmed N2 disease as our preferred modality, I'm not uh, planning for surgery. Dr. Kim, Tony, Let me go to you. For a resectable stage three, do you have a different approach in Los Angeles? It's largely similar. I would say that there's a couple things that factor into it. For example, the type of resection, if it's a lobectomy versus a pneumonectomy, in this case, it sounds like it's a lobectomy. But then the other things that factor into it is there a single station disease or multi-station disease. I think that's an indicator of burden of disease. And if it's multi-stational, probably lean a little bit more towards definitive chemoradiation. That being said, I think for our preference, generally speaking, we like to enroll in a clinical trial. And for example, here we have some immunotherapy trials that have opened, if not, and, and also we have a few others in the queue. And that's what we try to offer. Now, off trial, we, we have, if we believe that the functional status and the outlook warranted, say, single station disease, we have offered conventional off trial induction chemoradiation therapy or chemotherapy, and then surgery, uh, followed by um, the potential need for additional adjuvant therapy. And I think part of that's driven by an assessment of the patient, as Dr. Rivera said, but also I think the data is, I still think the body at large of clinicians has to maintain sort of an equipoise position on how to manage stage 3A disease or stage 3 disease for that matter, because I think the data is still evolving. And I do believe that these immunotherapy trials may be uh, game changers in that regard. Yeah, this, this may be a way to unite us because I think this is a perfect example. Very different approaches for the same disease, all I think are reasonable. In the past, it was really difficult to complete these studies because we all have such strong institutional preferences. For example, if we have a single station stage three at Georgetown, our preference really is neoadjuvant chemo and surgery. And you know, I, th- I think there are many different ways to approach that and each case is somewhat individual. But perhaps these neoadjuvant studies will unite us if we find a, a really great approach. So when you think of neoadjuvant therapy, so cases, whether it's on study or off, of neoadjuvant therapy, Tony, does that impact the, the surgery and the risk of complications, whether it's chemotherapy, radiation, immunotherapy? How does that change your surgery? 
Gosh, I mean, I feel like that's a whole other sort of uh, podcast unto itself. But, you know, if I were to say in brief, it, it absolutely does impact what we do. Uh, for example, if you were going to do a pneumonectomy and you had res- you thought you might have residual N2 disease after chemoradiation therapy, I believe that the risk profile is prohibitive to doing anything surgically, uh, largely because of the complication profile, but also what are you going to gain out of that when you resect positive N2 disease at the end? So I think those types of things factor in. I think that in general, when you add radiation to the mix, it becomes a little bit of a tougher operation, and especially the farther out you get. So I think these are the things we think about when we think about what are the potential complications and things like bronchopleural fistula also change the conduct of the operation in that you're looking for adjuncts to the actual resection to, to prevent those types of complications such as muscle flaps, et cetera. So it's a multifactorial problem. And, and yes, we do take into account how neoadjuvant therapy impacts the or influences the risk of those complications. Now we're entering the era of immunotherapy in the perioperative setting. We've got some positive results, at least by press release. So we'll look forward to seeing a lot of these data. But what we're really going to need to become used to this is a new modality. And we've seen some reports in the New England Journal paper from Dr. Jamie Chaff, Dr. Patrick Ford, looking at neoadjuvant checkpoint inhibition and nodal flares, where we see uptake in contralateral nodes, uptake in nodes that look like progression, but they end up not being disease-related. So important to, to confirm those. Immunotherapy, I think it generates a lot of excitement, but we have to become more familiar with it. Patricia, general enthusiasm for the immunotherapy approach in this setting? I am very enthusiastic about the immunotherapy moving to the early stage disease and to the neoadjuvant in locally advanced disease. Having said that, the concurrent chemoradiotherapy followed by drivolumab data is pretty, pretty robust, right? So it I guess it remains to be seen how much more benefit we get from immunotherapy before, let's say, concurrent chemorads or before surgery, followed by, you know, post-operative therapy. In the early stage setting, I think it's also, it's going to be very exciting. I think the phase one study showing that, I think, what was it, 40% of the specimens resected had no tumor. In, in patients who were treated with immunotherapy before surgery, I think that's um, I think that's very very exciting. As a pulmonologist, I have a lot of respect for immunotherapy related pneumonitis in particular. I think that in the real world, the complication is higher than what was reported in the clinical trials. Yeah. We have recently published our own data. We with an incidence rate of about nine percent. But more concerning is a high mortality rate. There are definite uh, factors that uh, predict the development of immunotherapy-related pneumonitis that really have to be considered. So I am very enthusiastic because I've seen the benefits in the stage four patients and in the locally advanced um, patients who are treated with darvolumab. But I think we also have to be cautious and attentive to symptom changes and even think about physiologic assessment before, during, and after immunotherapy. And I think of immunotherapy in the same way that I'm starting to think of immunotherapy in the same way that I was taught to think about bleomycin as a fellow at Sloan Kettering. Mm. And, you know, how the approach to bleomycin therapy 
incorporated physiologic assessment to detect subtle changes in lung function, particularly in the diffusing capacity, because, you know, bleomycin is one of those drugs that can show changes of a diffusion impairment, which usually implies early interstitial lung disease that you cannot see radiographically, and how holding the therapy and waiting for that DLCO to improve before you give the bleomycin again has really, you know, changed, I think, the risk of bleomycin-related pneumonitis. We really don't have that in the immunotherapy group. You know, what I tell my, my medical oncology colleagues, whenever you're at the table and you're designing these clinical trials that involve immunotherapy with the pharmaceutical companies, really advocate for how to involve the pulmonologists and how to be creative about physiologic assessment before, during, and after so that we can detect early, you know, grade one pneumonitis um, before we, we are diagnosing grade three. Now that's the healthy respect. And I think that's a great point as to why we need bigger studies. When we have a single arm phase two trial, we're very selective with patients. But one of the things we look at in these bigger studies is you know, do the side effects of the toxicity, will that impair our path to surgery? Will it prevent people from going to surgery? Those are important outcomes. Tony, any, what, what are you hearing about operating on someone who's had immunotherapy? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And, and I was going to touch upon that. But I, I think just first and foremost, I think this is an exciting time to be a lung cancerologist, if you will, largely because I think we're on the cusp of some major trials reporting out their exciting results. And, and, and I think that those results give hope for a lot of patients. But in terms of what you had said about, you know, the, taking out the tumors and finding no disease there, I think that's, that's, that's a real thing that occurs at the time of surgery, that we're observing that that's a, a phenomenon. But the other thing that comes with that is, and it's been debated already a significant amount in the world of surgery, is that are you getting a more significant fibrotic reaction with these neoadjuvant regimens? And as such, is it making the surgery harder? Is it, put, is it more taxing on the patient's? I think those are the uh, pieces of data that I think will be exciting to read about as well, just from the you know, nuts and bolts of doing surgery standpoint. That said, again, I think it's an exciting time. I think what, what immunotherapies have brought along with it is the fact that now, you know, rather than overall survival exclusively, there's other endpoints that are now being evaluated, such as major pathologic response, and then things such as disease-free interval is, is, is gaining more sort of gravitas in how these trials and the results are being uh, interpreted. And I think lastly, I think these trials beget, you know, future trials that are pushing, pushing newer anti pdl one agents and, and the like. And so, so I think for that, it's exciting. But from, a, from the field of surgery, I think it's exciting. I don't think that uh, we'll ever be put out of business because I think at the end of the day, you still need the tumor to know if you had the, or the resection to know that you had a major pathologic response. And so I think that it's great to be a part of this exciting evolution. Yeah, this has been great. I think it's so valuable to have this multidisciplinary perspective and input, particularly in that stage three setting. Um, can I ask, outside of this case, how are tumor boards run at your own institutions? Uh, Tony, do you have a regularly scheduled tumor board at USC? Yeah, you know, I'm smiling a little bit behind the screen because where I was before here, I Train, I didn't train. I worked with one of uh, Dr. Rivera's former colleagues who really brought over the UNC model to where I was before, and which was having that weekly tumor board meeting where 
all the disciplines were represented. You had to have a minimum of one of each, and oftentimes you had more than one. And you discussed the difficult cases in a room. You also had protocols where you knew the straightforward cases you could go over relatively quickly because you followed a protocol. And and I think the discussion generated in uh, these multidisciplinary treatment wards that are regularly scheduled weekly, uh, with you know with the pathologist as well to review the slide with the radiologist, they're really educational. And I think it has the benefit of benefiting the clinicians because you all learn from each other, but also benefiting the patients because again, as a collective, you you get to uh, uh, make the decision. And what I can tell you as a surgeon. I felt like one of those commercials where when I went to talk to the patient and said, well, you're going to get surgery, I knew I had an army of people behind me supporting that decision. And so I think there's, there's, there's a certain strength in numbers with, with those types of, with, with tumor boards in general, these multidisciplinary uh, discussions. So Patricia, you seem to set the model. Can you tell us what are the tumor boards like at, at UNC? What is this model? So the tumor board is held every week. We have our multidisciplinary clinic on Tuesdays. We have several other clinics, but on Tuesdays, it's where all the specialties are present. The tumor board is roughly an hour and a half. Sometimes we can get through an hour. It starts at 7.30, ends at 9. And it includes specialists from all the disciplines, including pathology, thoracic radiology, nuclear medicine, and interventional radiology, in addition to interventional pulmonary, you know, of course, thoracic surgery, radonc, and medonc. We often have our our clinical trials, uh, nurse coordinators, uh, president tumor board, of course, the residents, the fellows, uh, medical students, if they're rotating. The uh, palliative care uh, providers uh, try to join at least once a month. And case managers, because we have a lot of issues with patients uh, needing support and help in order to be able to get to their appointments, et cetera. And cases are submitted usually by Friday, 5 p.m., that will need to be discussed on Tuesday. And that gives the pathologists and the radiologists a chance to prepare in advance. And usually either myself or one of the surgeons will run the tumor board, meaning, okay, next case. And it's indeed meant to be a multidisciplinary discussion, particularly focusing on complex cases. The summary of the tumor board is then um, incorporated into the electronic record so that there is a, you know, we have a template for MTOP. This is what we discuss, and this is what the multidisciplinary tumor board recommended. Wow, it's that's also great. Yeah. an opportunity for physicians outside of the multidisciplinary clinic. So we have a lot of, you know, the head and neck surgeons, the hepatologists who are evaluating a patient for, for transplant who has a nodule to be able to come to tumor board, present their patient, their case get an opinion rendered, and then, yes, we're worried about this lesion, or we think this lesion looks infectious, this is what we recommend. And it works well. I mean, I think it's a great service for patients, and it's a great educational platform for everyone in the healthcare system. Yeah, I kind of want to dial in, kind of want to dial in myself. Now, Patricia, multidisciplinary clinics are, you know, they're a recognized essential part of lung cancer management. They didn't always exist. Can you talk to some of the early experiences with a multi-D clinic? Absolutely. Um, And for us at UNC, the multidisciplinary thoracic oncology program was really the brainchild of Frank Detterbeck. Frank 
was a thoracic surgeon who had done his fellowship at UNC and really had a vision for bringing together um, individuals with specialty training in thoracic oncology to manage the complex care of the lung cancer patient. At the time, this was 1994, 93, 94, UNC did not really have dedicated thoracic medical oncologists. Uh, There was a multidisciplinary breast cancer program that had been well-developed, as well as a colorectal and head and neck, but there was no thoracic oncologist and no one in pulmonary really had much of an interest in lung cancer. And we put together a team of four people, Frank from surgery, myself, pulmonary, Mark Szynski from medical oncology and um, Jan Halley from radiation oncology. And we decided that we were just going to do this. (laughs) We were gonna all start a clinic And we did a lot of planning before this, we started this clinic. We celebrated our 25th anniversary on September 12th, 2020. We selected a day where obviously everybody was going to be able to participate. So there were no competing demands on, you know, I had to be in surgery, I have to be in the ICU. We created the infrastructure to be able to obtain basic radiographic uh, pulmonary function testing, quantitative perfusion scans on the same day with this notion that it would be sort of a one-stop shop for patients, particularly patients who were traveling from a long distance. If it was a patient that Frank was referred to Frank, but Frank felt that I needed to see the patient that day and we needed to get pulmonary function tests, we had secured enough slots within PFT lab in quantitative perfusion scans and CT scans to be able to get them done that day. And we created a model where if a patient was coming in to see one subspecialist, but that subspecialist felt that the patient needed to see, you know, the surgeon or the medical oncologist that day, where those individuals would be able to accommodate and provide the consultative services on that day in clinic. The clinic was a huge success from the very first day that we started, September 12, 1995, and it became really a model for multidisciplinary care across other areas at UNC. We modeled the pulmonary hypertension program, the interstitial lung disease program, the bronchiectasis program from this model of bringing together people with different expertise to care for patients with a specific disease process. Nurse navigators are critically important. Without them, I think we would have never been able to accomplish what we accomplished. And I just want to, you know, Stephen, I think you said that it's, there are many places that, you know, have a difficult time doing this. And and I can understand why, because it's a lot of commitment, but there have been programs in the country that are not in academic centers that have successfully built multidisciplinary lung cancer programs, because it really requires the passion and commitment and the physician champion to get it going. And there's a group in uh, Nebraska that did a phenomenal job. They actually celebrated their 20th anniversary. They came to visit us, several, the surgeon, the pulmonologist, the medical oncologist, they spent two days rotating with us in our clinic and going through how to set up a program. And they built a program that is still, that is very successful and continues to thrive in the community. So I think it's doable. It's just work. Can can I just add a little bit onto that, Dr. Rivera? So one of the things I think that's key to this, and I know you know this very well, was that 
part of what made that tomb board work was your standardized policies. And Frank was the exact person I was talking about when I said my, my mentor. And so the group comes together and develops a policy for how you treat each stage of disease, including as you get to the more advanced stages, such as the case here and beyond, there are, you know, not only a list of templated ways to treat them, but also the list of clinical trials that are open to the patient. So it's this evolving and living document that you have to modify as a group, you know, periodically. And I think that exercise in and of itself helps you stay on top of the evidence-based medicine. And so so I think that's the pearl is it forces you to become a student of lung cancer care as well. And I think that is so powerful. So for me here, when I came to USC, I used a lot of the Frank Detterbeck UNC template to help us develop a uh, tumor board that's very similar, if not identical to what Dr. Rivera has described. It's such a smart model. I mean, it takes the, the coordination, the onus off the patient, really onto the system. And you know, the patient's already going through so much already. I'm sure they they appreciate that as well. This has been fantastic. I've learned quite a bit. You know, we're, we're at time. So wrapping up this episode, I want to thank everyone for listening. Tune in to find more of our Tumor Board series wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you ha- yourself have a challenging case you'd like us to consider? If so, please send us an email at podcasts, uh, P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S, podcasts, plural, at IASLC.org. Especially like to thank Dr. Patricia Rivera, Dr. Tony Kim, for making the time to speak with us today, for all their expertise and for all the work they do. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please tune in on the first and third Mondays of every month. Don't forget to like the podcast, to share it with colleagues and friends. Thank you and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. Dream.
But in reality, you cradled me.